Good morning. Great. It's such a privilege to be with you this morning. Um, Emerges my home church has been for the last three years, four years or so. Love being part of this family. But I've got another role, as some of you know, in Alpha Crucis, where we're trusting God to establish a Christian university that could push back the darkness that is infiltrating the thought processes of society. <clears throat> and a lot of times when we speak on this, uh, people think, but is it really possible? Will it really be um, something that could happen? And just this week, I heard a story where um, uh, the education department decided to write Christianity out of Australia's history. They actually wanted to remove every reference of Christianity out of our history. And um, we heard of it. And one of our professors wrote a response. And based on that response, they said, well, <laughs> it's such an integral part of the history of Australia, they decided to include it back again. So, <clears throat> we, th we think about little things like that, not little, it's actually massive, realizing that there's certain... Um, angles that we've got to empower different kinds of people to approach the building of God's kingdom in society. And I'm absolutely convinced that having a Christian university is one of those. Um, so this morning, I want to take a little moment to talk to you about being self-made. The word for the year is follow me and I will make you. It's so important to get to that point in life where you realize that what we are is because of what God created and what God made. And not falling into this uh, um, lifestyle where we want to create our own being and our own self. I remember when we just got married, I decided one afternoon to cook. I wasn't a good cook. Um, but I wanted to do some chicken and some mash. And I sort of looked at this whole mesh thing, and I thought, well, it's easy. It's just potatoes, and after a while, it didn't look the way I wanted it to look, so I read up, and they said, just add a bit of baking powder, and I added baking powder to the mesh, and it was beautiful. It just became fluffy, and it filled everything, and I thought, well, if a little bit does that, imagine what a lot of baking powder does to the mesh, so I added a lot more, and it was beautiful, the most fluffy, light mesh ever, until we ate it. It was like sherbet. It just, it just came out of our mouths. And um, for the next 12 years, my wife refused to eat anything that I cooked. <laughs> but but there's, there's little moments in this self-made. I, I remember when I was young, one afternoon, I decided to build my own swing. We had a big willow tree in our front garden. And I decided to build my own swing because as a young boy, I wanted to do things a bit differently. And... I still remember having the rope and, um, and, and building a little platform. And at one point, I thought, if I just put my neck through and just tie it around, I'll, I'll get this done. The good thing is, it was at the time that my mom was driving home. And I slipped, and that rope just caught my neck. And I, I hung myself. So here's my mom driving, seeing me hanging, and I couldn't get... <laughs> And I realized, better to buy a swing. <laughs> Not... But I've got a few pictures of people that sort of fell in the self-made trap that I just want to show you. Um, first one. <laughs> it's not going to be any privacy uh, on, <laughs> on this one. I really like this for naughty kids. Um, if you can show the next one. Um, 
I love that. That's brilliant. Uh, let's put them on the slide and get rid of them, um, kind of thing. But there's, there's another one if you want to hurt them. Next slide, if you can put that on. Let's imagine that. That's beautiful. Uh, woo! Sunday fun day, Enrica, there's an idea. Uh, <clears throat> or uh, there's, there's a last one um, where some building plans just never come together. Last pick, thanks. Um, where imagine <laughs> the guy that actually thought about that just doesn't come together. So we've all experienced something of this self-made failings in, in life. And, and it's actually an, a very interesting thing. The origin of, of self-made, this process that we can do better than God, has a few origins. Um, when it comes to modern thinking, a, a guy in 1637, I know it doesn't sound modern, but still... It's about 4,000 years before that. So 1637, a guy called Descartes actually coined a term called cogito ergo sum, basically meaning I think, therefore I am. Now this is interesting because when that term was introduced, up until that point, God was the object of reality that defined everything. And Descartes came and said, no, 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 no. Basically, let's push God to the side and establish our own thoughts about life, my feelings, as the primary source of validation and reality. And this became the main influencing thought that infiltrated the whole Western society and basically is the construct of wokeism today. Now, to simplify that thought even further, it means that what I think about life carries more weight than anything else. And, and we see it rife. I don't want to go into all the little political and all the little examples, but this premise has become the way that people view life, that what I think carries more weight than God or anyone else in life. Frank Sinatra probably summarized it the best when he sang the little song, I did it my way. Anyone wants to sing that this morning? Um, no, no, I'm not going to. Yeah. But, but there was a point of origin even before Descartes actually brought this. And I want to ask you this morning just to, to, to open your minds. Um, there's certain sermons, and last week's Sunday evening at Warner was one of those where it was an experience, where God just shaped us in a way that I've very rarely experienced in my life. But then there's sermons that actually helps you to think and see differently. And this morning, I want to play around with that. Is that okay? So Genesis 3. Very interesting reference. Um, it's an origin story, and we know that origin stories actually tells us what was the intended picture and what went wrong, so that we can understand why we are where we are today. So Genesis 3 verse 1 to 7 starts with saying, Now the serpent was craftier than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Did God really say, <laughs> You must not eat from any tree in the garden. Was that what God said? What did God say? You can eat of every tree except one. So, so very cunning, very deceitful. So the woman said to the serpent, we may eat from the, fruit, uh, from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat from the fruit that is in the middle of the garden, um, and you must not touch it or you will die. So um, the snake comes and says, you won't die. The serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, what, what does he say? Your? Now, this is interesting. Your? 
eyes will be opened. Very interesting reference. And you will be like God. What's the problem with this statement? Genesis 1, 27, 26, 27 says, you were created in the image and likeness of God. Did they need to add anything to who they were? Nothing. They were a full expression of what God had intended. They were like God. The word image means that physically they resembled. Likeness means in character, in nature, they resembled God. Which is incredible. But the snake comes and he sort of sows confusion. That there's something more that you need to add to your life to become like God. God is actually withholding something from you. So when the woman saw <clears throat> that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable, desirable for gaining wisdom. This is key. She took some and ate. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Where a lot of people ask the question, why didn't Adam respond? Um, Eve was naked. He couldn't see the snake. He saw Eve. Um, so just help the man. Uh, just a joke. Just a joke. Adam had to respond better. Um, and here's, here's what verse 7 comes. He says, Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized that they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. This is so interesting that, that we need to realize that Satan's cunning lies are always cheap attempts to make us believe that God is withholding good things from us in order to tempt us in believing that we could take responsibility for our own making, for becoming something or someone outside of God's design. See, the, the serpent only spoke twice. It wasn't a big discourse, but only twice the serpent spoke and sowed doubt that actually created distance between Adam and Eve and Adam um, and his creator and Eve and the creator in that little moment. So when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good, it's an interesting comment. Because up until this point, the only notion that we have of someone seeing that it was good was reference to God. Everything he created, he saw that it was good and he blessed it. But suddenly Eve came to this place, and Eve at that point represents humanity. So don't fall in the trap of um, this, um, it's a woman, it's a, it's, she represents humanity at that point. She saw something that was good beyond what God designed. And she took responsibility for that. To say, I will take ownership of creating good outside of what God intended for me. And remember, uh, she never decided to include evil in the package. She only wanted good on her terms, on her way of doing things. And that's so often our way of life. We love the life that God designs and we love the life that God sort of presents until we think there's a way that we can get something better. And guess what happens? We put God aside and we take ownership because we want good but how often um, does chasing the good actually result in us falling into evil because it's a package 
it's two sides of the same coin. Every time you attempt to chase goodness outside of God's context, you'll get evil uh, meshed up in it. But it's basically in, um, inserted into the picture that they wanted to start making themselves. And, and, and when, when you think about it and you read the scripture, um, the first thing <laughs> that they saw after they made this decision was their nakedness. The first thing that Adam and Eve realized, what, um, what defined them straight after making the choice, was nakedness. Meaning, up until that point, they were fully satisfied with everything that God created. And suddenly at that point, they came to a place where they said, I am lacking something. And guess what they did? <laughs> they sued fig leaves. They made something to cover themselves up. Now, this is a critical principle. When it comes to God making us, it's all about us revealing His glory. When it comes to us making ourselves, it's all about us reducing God's glory and hiding God's glory. There's something in this. Every time we make this choice, we become less. So, so we hide behind these um, these self-made veils, and, and instead of us living as created beings, we start the journey of thinking that there's life in all the expressions of being self-made. And, and we've all heard the stories of people that has gone through the addictions and the depressions and the faulty decisions that's taken them on the down curve of being self-made until they discover that God is in the process and in the, the, uh, He's got pleasure in recreating us in His image and likeness. So there's a few dangers connected to being self-made. And I just thought about that when I wrote this down. I just took a moment and I just paused. And I almost want to ask you, just close your eyes for a second and ask yourself this question. <laughs> Do you really want to carry the weight of being self-made? Do you really want to own that responsibility that I have to create myself? You can open your eyes. Just, just think about this. The, the biggest danger of being self-made is that they reduce people. I said that. Um, because um, basically what being self-made is we take big things and we reduce them into small little molds. Now, I don't want to take a dig at Aussie culture, but it's actually interesting. It's not just an Aussie culture thing. It's a culture thing across the world, and I'll show you in a second, where we actually have a term in society called tall poppy syndrome. What does that mean? That if I see anything that looks bigger than me, what do I do? I cut it down so that it just fits the size of everyone, including me. Now, this was an interesting thing. Um, it's actually a psychological syndrome that exists, not only in our culture, but in many different cultures across the world. It originated with a, uh, with a guy called Ting, uh, King Tarkin. His son, um, he had a very interesting name, his son's name was Sextus, was infiltrating a leadership of a different city. And he came to his father, and his father was an absolute tyrant. And he said to him, Dad, what do I need to do to overtake this city? And the story actually goes where um, the dad just walked out into the poppy fields and took a sword and just cut off all the top poppies. And the son got the message. 
go and assassinate every person in power in the other city. And the city fell. It's interesting that if you take out the, um, the people that are shining, everyone else will follow. And that's what is actually happening in not just the world, but in Christian society, where the enemy is targeting people, leaders that have risen, and he's taking them out because we don't realize that it's an enemy's tech to cut us down to size, to keep us in place so that we don't reveal, we reduce. Um, and and it, it's, it's, like I said, something that runs into every society. I mean, I do that every morning with my hair. I wake up and I look in the mirror and I see there's two of you. And I'm going to cut you down to size because I like everything. Similar size, similar shape. Uh, the fact is the tall poppy syndrome doesn't just go back to ancient times. It appears in cultures across the world. In Japan, they've got a saying, the nail that sticks up gets hammered down. Um, there's another phenomenon that sort of runs around where they call it the um, crab bucket mentality. And it's widely accepted that with crabs, if you throw them in a bucket, you don't need to put a lid on. Because as soon as one tries to get out, the others will claw him back and just pull him down. And there's something in the sense where it's actually inborn, resulting from that desire to make ourselves, where we realize we don't have the ability, we don't have the capacity, and instead of actually shining and revealing the glory of God, we fall into mindsets where the only thing we are comfortable with is cutting everyone, including ourselves, down to shape, and we become small. Here's the interesting thing. We don't just do it with us. We actually do it with God. And there's a biblical story that tells, that, that tells it. Where in Exodus 32 verse 7 and 8, it's an incredible story. Where <clears throat> the Israelites were taken out of Egypt and there was a massive display of the miraculous power of God just moving. Um, I mean, it's seas opening up. It's water coming out of rocks. It's birds and, and bread flying out of heaven. It is insane. Sometimes we just need to look at stories like that to consider not just the sophistication of it, now as God provided, but to think what it looks like every morning with bread raining out of heaven, with God saying, I'll provide for your needs every day. To walk in the wilderness with no water and a guy comes and he strikes a rock and suddenly water starts I mean, birdies just coming saying, eat me, eat me, I'm yours, every single day. And all of that were um, God's initiative to actually show the Israelites that I want to take care of you. I want to be your God, and you will be my people. And in this process, God brings Moses aside, and actually there's seven visitations between Moses and God where they're nutting out the terms of this covenant and at the point of this covenant almost being fulfilled, and Enrico mentioned it, it was the giving of the law, the Israelites grow impatient. They didn't want to wait for Moses. And guess what they do? They go to Aaron and said, we don't want to wait for Moses or God to act. Do something and make a God for us. Now, this actually introduces the fact that we don't just make people into small, reduced images. We will actually take initiative and reduce God to our image. Something that is small, that fits in the box. Listen to what 
it says. So Aaron went up and he took all the gold and silver and he melted it down and he built a golden calf, which I understand because it's a reference of great meat and steak. So there's a part of that that I get. The vegetarians don't always like that idea. But, <clears throat> but, but he builds a calf. And we would think that he's actually building a calf representing some kind of God in Egypt. But it's not what he's doing. Listen to what God said to Moses. Get down for your people whom you brought out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way which I commanded them, and they have made themselves a molded calf. What did they do? They formed God into a little image, a little idol, and worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, this is your God, O Israel, that brought you out of the land of Egypt. This God that opened the Red Sea, this God that rained manna out of heaven, this God that sent birds um, as a sacrifice and food, this God that opened water in the desert, suddenly reduced to the image of a calf. And if you actually look at the scripture, they're not just saying this is a God. They use the word, this is Yahweh. The God that took you out of Egypt. Where if we don't take care, we will reduce ourselves and people and the image of God to a little mold that we can manage. And we ask the question, God, why can't we see you in our lives? See, it's such a danger when it comes to being self-made. Because when we reduce God and ourselves and others to this little mold that is manageable, the problem happens when the real crisis in life appears. It's in those moments that you actually need the God that can speak to a sea and it opens up, that can walk on water, that can raise the dead, that can heal the sick. But if you reduced him to this little thing that you can manage, Suddenly, your crisis overwhelms you, and you become stuck and stagnant, and you are just pacified by the challenge that life presents. It's, it's incredible to think that we have this narrative showing us that there's a creator who has our best intent, and over and over and over, we find ourselves trying to do it on our own terms, instead of surrendering to the life that He's made possible. So Jesus enters this picture, and I want to connect this to the verse that um, Pastor Mark sort of spoke into this year, follow me and I will make you. There's a few very interesting things that actually happens before Jesus says to His disciples, follow me. John the Baptist in Mark 1, um, and um, I'll take some of this out of Mark chapter 1, says, the one coming after me is way bigger than me, this Jesus. He says, the one coming after me um, will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Now, now just think, this is, this is for free, this is you magazine, um, very interesting. We often hear the story of... <clears throat> God meeting Adam and Eve in the cool of night. 
thinking that it was God sort of tiptoeing. <laughs> hey, guys, here I am. But every reference of God coming in wind or God coming in the cool of night, except the one with Elijah, meant that there was literally a violent, rushing wind. Everyone knew God was coming. And before sin, Adam and Eve actually welcomed this incredible, this radiant, this revealing God, knowing that when this wind appeared, guess what? God's on the move. It's interesting with the giving of the law when, um, when Moses and the Israelites went into the wilderness. God said to Moses, bring the people to me. And guess what happened? God was so excited to meet them at the mountain that it was thunder and wind and rain. And God was revealing himself as this incredible being saying, I'm welcoming you. Guess what the Israelites said to God, to Moses? Moses, you go alone. Go and hear what God says. Come and tell us. We don't want to meet with him, basically. But John says, Jesus will baptize you in the Holy Spirit. Guess what happens at Pentecost? When they're all together in one accord, the sound of a mighty rushing wind entered that room. And suddenly humanity realized once again that we will welcome the wind and the presence and just this incredible awesomeness of God into our lives. We're not going to run away from the wind. We're going to allow the wind to infiltrate and fill us and release us. So John promises that. And then Jesus gets baptized. And we learn three things out of the life of Jesus before this whole follow me and I'll make you. After Jesus came out of the water, the Bible says the Spirit descended on him. And three major declarations. God looks at Jesus and says, you're mine. I love you. And I'm proud of you. A part of being made and created by God is actually embracing those three statements. Knowing that you probably have taken responsibility in some point of your life trying to recreate yourself. Falling in um, the pitfalls of being self-made. But God actually comes to you saying, irrespective of that, I'm looking at you right now. And I'm going to start a process of remaking you. But before I do that, I want you to know that I love you. That, I'm <clears throat> that you're mine, that I love you. And that I'm proud of you. Why? Because God trusts what he made. He actually loves the things that he creates. And it's within that statement that Jesus goes into the wilderness, comes out after, the tempt after temptation. And his first message in, recorded in the book of Mark starts by saying, The time is now. This is the moment and he says, repent and believe in the gospel. Now, if you want to ask me what's one of my little pet subjects, <laughs> I love helping people understanding the power of the gospel. Because if you don't understand the gospel, you can't embrace what Jesus actually made available. So before Jesus comes to that point of saying, follow me and I'll make you, he says, believe because the kingdom is now here. So believe in the gospel. So, Henrika, could I just have that white screen? I want to show you guys something when it comes to the gospel. The word repent, <clears throat> we so often um, interpret as just making, um, I made a mistake, I stole a biscuit, and now I need to 
repent because I stole the biscuit. But what if repenting is way bigger than just saying sorry because I stole the biscuit? What if repenting is all about things? It's all about saying, God, I've fallen into the mold of trying to create myself. And I've got to allow a whole new worldview to shape me. Where repent is not just saying, sorry, I did something wrong. Repent is turn around and walk into a very different direction. That the enemy, the serpent, caught us in a snag and took us to this place where we tried to make and create ourselves. Repenting is getting back to the place where we allow God to create us, to recreate us in His image and likeness. So I want to show you a verse in the Bible that's probably the best summary of the gospel um, out. Are you good for that? Romans 5 verse 17 is all about good news. And that's what the word gospel actually means. So it, comes by, it starts by saying, if the transgression of the one, death reigned through the one. Now when did that happen? In the garden of? Eden. What happened? Adam and Eve made the choice to eat of the fruit that they weren't allowed to eat. So what is Paul saying? What was the effect of the transgression? It says, death reigned in that moment. So God was right by saying that you will surely die. That word die means you'll start perishing. Your life will actually waste away. That's what the word die actually means. And we read through that story that three things were introduced. The first one was guilt, where Adam and Eve came to a place where they felt they did something wrong, and what did they do? They hid. The second one was shame, where the big difference between guilt and shame, guilt is all about a, a sense of I did something wrong. Shame is understanding that I am someone wrong. There's something deeply wrong inside of me. That there's a, there's a problem that can't be fixed. And it's not just what I did wrong. I am inherently evil or bad. And it's one of those things that you, you can try to fix it on your own. It is impossible to do. And the last one was pain, where God looked at them and said, because of this choice, you are going to live in the reality of pain for the rest of your life. In thorns and thistles, you'll start working. In childbearing, you'll be, it, it'll happen with pain. And pain became the environment that we exist in because of that choice. But Paul comes and he says, if by the transgression of the one man, death reigned and death reigns through guilt, shame, and pain, he uses a very interesting Greek term that we read there. He says, how much more? Now, this is a very interesting little term because it isn't saying that, well, God just counted guilt, shame, and pain. He says, what we received in Adam equals that, but what we receive in Jesus Christ outweighs Anything that we ever received in Adam. So if Adam gave us guilt, 
shame, and pain. What Jesus did is literally over and above more than what is necessary to cancel the effects of guilt, shame, and pain in our lives. So he comes and he says, so we received. (laughs) So how much more will those who receive? What does receive mean? You get. You don't earn. You don't have to try to earn this. It's a free gift. That's the good news of the gospel. Instead of guilt, he gives us ah. better. He gives us grace. Where guilt centered around you did something wrong. Grace is all about you receive, not based on your own merit, but based on what? I did. The second one, where shame is all about having that sense of of wrongness inside of me. Righteousness is a very um, interesting term. Righteousness is all about being declared right in your innermost being. Enrico referenced that verse out of Hebrews this morning where because of the blood of Jesus, our conscience has been cleansed. Imagine living the kind of life where there's no reference of guilt or shame in your conscience. That there's nothing inside of you convicting you that you're wrong. But everything inside of you is actually echoing what God established and created in us. That you are right. You are innocent. You deserve to be um, um, the reflection and the revelation of my glory. And, and, and here's the interesting thing. He said, how much more will those who receive the abundance of grace, the word abundance, it's not just enough, it's more than enough, the gift of righteousness, reign in life. There's a sense of authority that is established again when God makes us. Instead of us losing our authority because of sin, God actually looks at us and said, if you will allow me to recreate you, if you will follow me and allow me to make you, I'm going to restore you, I'm going to redeem you, and I'm going to set you up that not only will you live with a sense of grace and righteousness, but you will start living from this premise that you will start restoring things for the glory of God in your life, your family's life, and society's life, because that's what I've called you to. No longer... Will you live buckled under the weight of the self-made, sin-focused reality? I'm releasing you to become my agent of transformation in the world that we're living in. If you're not convinced of that, I want to conclude with a very interesting verse. Because this has everything to do with the understanding of us having the capacity to reflect Christ's image again. Listen to what 1 Corinthians 15 verse 49 says. It says, Just as we have borne the image of the one of dust. Who was that? Adam. Listen to what he says. We will also bear the image of the one of heaven. Can you understand why Um, Paul 
says in Romans 8, that the whole creation is waiting in tiptoe anticipation for the sons and daughters of God to be revealed. That everyone is waiting for us just saying, hey, we need to see in you that what God has promised can become real. Your lives need to reflect that glory once again. I'm going to ask the worship team to come forward. There's something in seeing this, but believing it is a challenge. Because we don't have to struggle with, is this true God? Because we've seen that in the lives of other people. But the biggest hurdle that we've got to cross is actually believing that God could recreate me again. That God could look at me saying, I'm going to deal with, this, with the guilt in your life that you've carried for so long. I'm going to actually speak into those moments of shame. And, and, and that's a difficult thing. Because there's some of the guilt and shame that was triggered by other people's decisions. And you were just on the receiving end. And, and, and God wants to deal with it. And some of us actually need to give God that opportunity this morning. But then there's moments where we realized we chose sin. We chose a way outside of God. And a big part of the guilt and the shame and the pain that we're experiencing is not because someone else stuffed it. It's because we chose it. And basically that results in us coming to a place where we can't believe that God, God can forgive this. That God could actually declare this innocent again. When I prayed about it this morning, I felt God say, Clint, I want to break strongholds over minds that can't receive the abundance of my grace and the gift of my righteousness so that they will live in a place of authority again. So I want to ask you to close your eyes. There's two groups of people. First, it's the people that are in this room this morning, and maybe you just stumbled into church, and this wasn't part of the big plan, but you've been confronted with a message that has challenged you to consider the difference between being self-made and God-made. And you realize up until this point in your life, you've never given God the opportunity to recreate something new in your life. And you just want to take this moment to say, God, I know that I've missed it, and I need to invite you to become Lord of my life again. If you're at that place, don't you want to raise your hand? I want to pray for you. Just say, God, I need you to come and recreate me. I want to choose you as Lord and Savior over my life. If you're at that place, do you want to raise your hand? I'd love to pray for you. Thanks for that hand. Before we move on, there's a few hands going up. Thank you, Jesus. Let's just take a moment and let's pray together for these individuals. Father, we come in the name of Jesus and we thank you that you are a God that seeks and saves the lost. I pray for these people that raise their hands, Lord, that today will be a marked beginning of a complete change that will take place in their lives. 
in the name of Jesus. I want to pray, Lord, that they would discover the reality of being created in Christ and not just made in their own image and their own likeness. In Jesus' name, amen. If you raise your hand, we've got some people that wants to pray with you afterwards um, at our um, info desk, so please make sure that you just uh, connect to us there. We'd love to spend time with you. There's a second group of people that you've been buckling under the weight of decisions. You've embraced Christ, but you're carrying the weight of your own guilt and your own shame, and you just want to say, God, I want to pray that you would release me. I just want to pray for you this morning. If you are struggling under guilt or shame or pain this morning, and you know that it was induced by your own choices, and you want to release that this morning, then you want to raise your hand. I want to pray for you. Thank you, Jesus. So, Father, we come, and we want to thank you this morning that we have a loving Father that has done everything possible to close the gap between us and Him. And this morning, Lord, we realize that as human beings, we fail, we make choices, and some of these choices, Lord, have severe consequences in our lives, resulting in guilt, shame, and pain. And specifically this morning, Lord, realizing that there's people sitting in this room this morning that has carried this guilt and shame and pain for many years, some of them even for many decades. So, Father, in the name of Jesus and based on everything that happened on the cross, I come and I pray that you would break the power of guilt, of shame, and of pain over their lives, Lord, and that you would release the abundance of your grace, Lord, the gift of your righteousness over them so that they will rule in this life. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.